The Intelligence and Security Division of Walter Reed presents a briefing on subversion and espionage directed against the military and operational security. The purpose of this briefing is to explain to you what subversion and espionage directed against the military is. It will explain somewhat the intelligence collection tactics and related activities which foreign governments use against us and your responsibilities and the defensive measures you can take to protect yourself, your dependents, your organization, and the United States government from this threat. The actions taken by foreign intelligence services are directed at people such as you to gain information that is vital to our national security. The foreign intelligence threat is real. It's a serious problem that we are facing and collection operations are being used against us continuously. The basic defense for protecting your classified information or unclassified information that can be of help to intelligence collectors is simply using good common sense and having a basic knowledge of how classified information can be compromised. Let's start here. The Washington DC area represents a unique threat to all of us. Why? The Soviet espionage network augmented by those of the Sino-Soviet satellite countries is by far the largest in the world. Its operational bases are located in virtually every country on the globe. Thousands of communist bloc espionage agents in the guise of diplomatic personnel, military attaches, commercial representatives, technicians, tourists, and emigres carry on clandestine intelligence operations from these bases. Some are located in Soviet and satellite embassies, consulates, or their residences associated with these diplomatic installations. Others operate under the cloak of press or travel agencies and trade delegations. Still others pose as citizens of the country they are living in while covertly engaged in espionage activities. There are over 30 known hostile intelligence agencies operating in the MDW area. We must, without reservation, accept that the activities of foreign intelligence organizations, hostile organizations, are extensive. Their bases are far-flung. Their professionalism proven. Their capabilities in any area extensive. And their principal target is you. In attempting to further their goals through you, they must first make an approach and recruit cooperation. The approach and recruitment of an individual by hostile intelligence is not a haphazard endeavor, but an extensive, well-planned, carefully researched project. The approach may be accomplished under a number of guises. First, the foreign agent might seek your friendship through a mutual interest, such as a hobby, an interest in the arts, a common professional background, or any other common interest. Secondly, he may seek you out in a social situation, such as a club meeting or a party or a place you frequently visit, and later follow up contact with an attempt to form an association of a more lasting nature. Thirdly, he may introduce himself through a mutual acquaintance and seek your association in a more direct manner. Whatever the method, the goal remains the same. To trap you and then use you to gain any information they need. 
To be of value to a foreign intelligence service, you must be motivated to do their bidding. Persons who become involved in espionage fall generally into four categories. One, those who operate for material rewards or money. Two, the person whose illegal activities have led to entrapment or fear of disclosure. Three, the ideologically motivated individual who believes the enemy's cause means more. And four, the person placed under pressure due to compromise or threats directed against relatives in a communist-controlled country. Many incidents go unreported by those who are actually approached by foreign intelligence personnel for such reasons as they were afraid to become involved or they were not sure how or who to report the incident to. Some are worried about the exposure of the misdeeds that they are confronted with in the first place. If you are aware, become involved in, or even if you have any suspicions about incidents of this nature, report all pertinent facts immediately to your nearest military intelligence office or to your security manager. Please do not discuss the information with any other persons. Please realize that you may be dealing with intelligent and highly professional espionage agents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Devil in the Details podcast, the podcast where I investigate and expose ongoing, unlawful, non-consensual human experimentation on innocent men and women in the U.S. and possibly abroad. I am one of those people victimized by this atrocity, and now I am working hard to restore justice by sharing evidence and information in hopes of prompting a proper investigation. Join me in my fight and help raise awareness by tuning in and sharing this podcast with your family and friends. What is an informant? An informant is a person who gives information. It's also one who supplies cultural or linguistic data in response to interrogation by an investigator. That's the dictionary definition. Now let's look at spy. A spy is a person who secretly collects and reports information on the activities, movements, and plans of an enemy or competitor. Okay. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Spies slash informants. The key to being a spy or an informant is the secrecy, the covert, covert nature of everything. You want to gather this information without the other person knowing that you're doing it. 
you're manipulating this person to believe that you are a friend, uh, but you are actually gathering this information in order to take it to someone else so they can use that to their advantage, right? So that they can use it against their target or uh, opponent or competitor. And the key is making the target or the person being spied on, you want them to feel comfortable. That's why you have to do it secretly. You want them to feel as comfortable as possible so that they'll freely give up the the information that you're seeking. You don't want them to have any reservations um, or any suspicions. You want to bypass those and lower those inhibitions in order to get the information that you're seeking. And that's what we'll be looking at today when we look at all the different examples of spies and informants and how they're used and how they've been used throughout history up to the present day. This episode kicks off a series exploring the topic of informants or spies from the present day back to East Germany after World War II and the civil rights era. We will look at examples of how spies were used not against politicians or as part of military strategy in war, but against innocent everyday citizens. In this episode, we will examine how informants are recruited and used, along with present-day examples of the use of confidential informants. But we'll look at some interviews with informants. I have a few clips that I've gathered together, and I'll share those with you at the end. I'll tack those onto the end of the podcast. This is an excerpt from the book, the classic book, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And the chapter is, of course, the use of spies. Thus, what enables the wise sovereign and the good general to strike and conquer and achieve things beyond the reach of ordinary men is foreknowledge. Now, this foreknowledge cannot be elicited from spirits. It cannot be obtained inductively from experience, nor by any deductive calculation. Knowledge of the enemy's dispositions can only be obtained from other men. Hence, the use of spies, of whom there are five classes, local spies, inward spies, converted spies, doomed spies, surviving spies. When these five kinds of spy are all at work, none can discover the secret system. This is called divine manipulation of the threads, is the sovereign's most precious faculty. 
Having local spies means employing the services of the inhabitants of a district. Having inward spies, making use of officials of the enemy. Having converted spies, getting hold of the enemy's spies and using them for our own purposes. Having doomed spies, doing certain things openly for purposes of deception and allowing our spies to know of them and report them to the enemy. Surviving spies, finally, are those who bring back news from the enemy's camp. Hence, it is that which none in the whole army are more intimate relations to be maintained than with spies. None should be more liberally rewarded, and no other business should greater secrecy be preserved. Spies cannot be usefully employed without a certain intuitive sagacity. They cannot be properly managed without benevolence and straightforwardness. Without subtle ingenuity of mind, one cannot make certain of the truth of their reports. Be subtle, be subtle, and use your spies for every kind of business. If a secret piece of news is divulged by a spy before the time is ripe, he must be put to death, but together with the man to whom the secret was told. Whether the object be to crush an army, to storm a city, or to assassinate an individual, it is always necessary to begin by finding out the names of the attendants, the aides de camp, and doorkeepers, and sentries of the general in command. Our spies must be commissioned to ascertain these. The enemy spies who have come to spy on us must be sought out, tempted with bribes, led away and comfortably housed. Thus, they will become converted spies unavailable for our service. It is through the information brought by the converted spy that we are able to acquire and employ local and inward spies. It is owing to this information, again, that we can cause the doomed spy to carry false tidings to the enemy. Lastly, it is by his information that the surviving spy can be used on appointed occasions. The end and aim of spying in all its five varieties is knowledge of the enemy. And this knowledge can only be derived in the first instance from the converted spy. Hence, it is essential that the converted spy be treated with the utmost liberality. So as we can see, the use of spies is an ancient tactic. I'm sure used long before Sun Tzu wrote about it. Even the Bible mentions the use of spies. Luke chapter 20 verses 20 through 22. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Galatians chapter two, verse four. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage.
Now you can do a search uh, online like I did to find these and other verses that mention the use of spies or informants. So as we can see, this is, uh, this is not a new concept. It's an ancient concept uh, used by many civilizations you know, and many different types of people, and not just for military purposes. Like I said, you know, people use them every day. You know, that's what eavesdropping is. It's basically spying on someone. Neighbors spy on neighbors. Spouses spy on spouses. Businesses spy on businesses. Governments spy on governments. Governments spy on citizens. And we've seen this in the recent debacle with the NSA, which is, you know, what they're after Snowden about, and even Assange. And supposedly this is all done in the name of national security. And that may be the case sometimes, but history tells us of times that spying was used for more nefarious purposes. I came across an article, an old article, in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. The name of the article is Motivations of Criminal Informants. And one of the things that struck out is, struck me as interesting is that psychopaths are typically used or preferred to be used by law enforcement as informants, okay? They prefer psychopaths. Now, what is a psychopath? Here's the definition listed in the article. Individuals who are basically unsocialized and whose behavior pattern brings them repeatedly into conflict with society. They are incapable of significant loyalty to individuals, groups, or social values. They are grossly selfish, callous, irresponsible, impulsive, and unable to feel guilt or learn from experience and punishment. Frustration tolerance is low. They tend to blame others or offer plausible rationalizations for their behavior. A mere history of repeated legal or social offenses is not sufficient to justify this diagnosis. Okay. So one of the things they look for is basically lack of loyalty and, you know, any basic, a basic lack of morals, really. Now, it goes on to say, Hervey Cleckley, I hope I'm saying that right, in The Mask of Sanity, lists 16 characteristics or traits of the psychopath. The officer should keep in mind the possible use of this type of individual as a criminal informant and interpret these characteristics accordingly, evaluating the effect each characteristic will have on the way the informant is handled and the purpose and usefulness of the information provided by him. Now, I will include a link to this, but there's also something else that I want to make note of. And it says here, Ernest Vandenhog advises psychopaths 
by definition, differ from ordinary people in that they do not experience guilt feelings. They find it psychologically easier to commit crimes. Therefore, whether or not the psychopath makes up the majority of the criminal population, the police officer should use extreme discretion and care when using him as an informant. Okay, now let's get into these 16 characteristics. Superficial charm and good intelligence. Two, absence of delusions and other signs of irrational thinking. Three, absence of nervousness or psychoneurotic manifestations. Four, unreliability. Five, untruthfulness and insincerity. Six, lack of remorse or shame. Seven, inadequately motivated antisocial behavior. Eight, poor judgment and failure to learn by experience. Nine, pathologic egocentricity and incapacity for love. 10, general poverty and major affective reactions. 11, specific loss of insight. 12, unresponsiveness in general interpersonal relations. 13, fantastic and uninviting behavior with drink and sometimes without. 14, suicide rarely carried out. 15, sex life impersonal, trivial, and poorly integrated. And 16, failure to follow any life plan. So as we can see, when choosing an informant, you know, they typically like to use criminals. And this will be important when we examine everything in future, you know, in, in more detail in the future episodes. But I wanted to read this and point out that you will often see when they when you deal with people who are informants, it's often going to be this type of person. Now, when we look at the Stasi and how they use people, you know, one of the tactics that they would use is coercion. So it wouldn't necessarily always be psychopaths that were used. A lot of times these were just regular, you know, everyday people, hardworking folks. And if you had just a little bit of something on them, you could, you know, coerce them and force them to spy for you. But we'll get into that later. Now, this next piece I want to read to you is basically on the motivation motivations for informants you know what drives them to do what they do and this is taken from a section called oversight of benefits to informants from uh, a website that I found called policingprinciples.org okay and it says here informants may have a wide variety of motives for cooperating with law enforcement Informants may be motivated by fear, financial gain, avoidance of punishment, competition, and revenge. That's a quote from Jessica A. Roth um, from Informant Witnesses and the Risk of Wrongful Convictions. The article goes on to say, but the key motive for their cooperation 
is that they are by definition witnesses who expect to receive benefits and avoid harms in exchange for information. As such, they may be driven to engage in dangerous conduct or to produce unreliable or fabricated statements. Indeed, one persistent challenge with the use of informants is that their motivations necessarily include some degree of self-interest, which in turn raises reliability concerns. Although informants' motivations in some cases may be complex, the very nature of the cooperation transaction requires a presumption that an informant's primary incentive is to obtain a benefit and that this incentive creates a strong bias that colors his or her testimony. So this shows us that coercion, you know, and there are different degrees of that, different degrees of influence, but you have to look at why an informant or a spy would do what they do. A lot of informants are paid. Some are uh, granted some other type of privilege, like a reduced sentence. You know, if they're working for law enforcement, they get may get some time tacked off or a ticket removed or warrant or something like that. So the motivations vary. But that kind of goes back to the old question, you know, does everyone have a price? You know, what is your price? Can you be bought? Can you be made to do something like this? And if your back is against the wall and you're looking for a way out, could you be desperate enough to be an informant, to be a spy? And you never really know until you're in that situation. And some, you know, you may know yourself. You may say, oh, I would never do that. But you never know what circumstances may come about that may make a person do something like that. So now we're going to take a look at some modern day examples of confidential informants. These are intervie interviews where these former informants share their stories and experiences working with law enforcement and how it all worked out for them. Uh, we'll also see some expert thoughts and opinions as well. And I want you to pay attention to how there's always a common theme in these stories and in these experiences that these people have had. And then after that, we'll close out the podcast. And I hope that you've enjoyed this information and learned a thing or two. And stay tuned for part two of this series on informants, where we will be looking at some examples of informants from the civil rights era. Um, and that's going to be really interesting. So I hope that you've enjoyed this. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Now check these out.
I call you because I gave you, I wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt you, for what? battled officer now facing some bombshell accusations in a federal suit. The officer, Brian Burton, once an undercover detective, now demoted. And we first told you the first details about the lawsuit last night. And tonight, for the first time, an informant tells her story of sexual harassment and threats to 24-hour news aides Brad Edwards. He's live now outside the federal court building. Brad. Good evening. This is where it was filed, a bombshell of allegations to no one's real surprise. After all, one of the defendants has had a lot of defending himself to do. The civil suit claims a woman's rights, her civil rights, were violated by cops after she went to cops and helped them. The black and white of a federal complaint alleging sexual harassment and more. Life ran amok when she went to help police. My whole family's been ripped apart. This, Tony Twyman's first interview. She was troubled when it began, a drinking and driving conviction, lost custody of her kids. Then she thought a neighbor was dealing drugs to her son. She entered Franklin PD, told Detective Brian Burton, then became an informant. If you help me, I will get rid of your charges and I will get your kids back for you. I'll do anything for my kids anything I do for my kids. Not so long after. I felt trapped in a situation that I could not get out of. He told me if I didn't do what he said, he'd make sure I went to prison. Her suit against Burton and Officer Ryan Mears. It alleges then-Detective Burton repeatedly touched her breasts while fitting her with a wire, exposed himself, even placed a sex toy in her car and laughed when she unknowingly sat on it, and more. He should have never been in that position to begin with. Her lawyer, Richard Waples. The allegations you outline are pretty egregious. They're serious charges. I mean, you got an officer here who is out of control. Franklin PD with no comment from the chief's office. A fire Burton page has popped on Facebook, 370 plus fans. A challenging Burton for chief page has 70 supporters. In March, 24 Hour News 8 reported Burton was accused of drinking on duty supplying beer and booze to underage informants and not reporting an accident he was in while on duty while he was illegally driving a confiscated car. Back then, the mayor defended what some thought indefensible for a law enforcer. I also don't believe that uh, you necessarily throw away a career or throw away an individual for uh, making bad decisions and stepping over the line. 
poor judgment, crossed the line, said the mayor, but not fired. Burton seemingly had a Teflon veneer in Franklin. What happened to Tony seems to be consistent with what he's done to other people. In the end, Twyman says Burton was put in charge of her, became her probation officer. In her words, He called me the next morning and he said, I'm your new daddy. So you wake up and you call me. You go to sleep, you call me. She went to cops to bust the person she thought was selling drugs to her son, and now this. I was only getting involved to help my son, and ultimately I lost him. It's hard for me to go on on a daily basis. The main goal of the suit, they say, is the removal of the officers. As for Officer Burton, with a record internally poor enough to have been demoted and at one point in time suspended without pay, Tonight, he is paid and on the job. Reporting live tonight from the federal courthouse in Indianapolis, Brad Edwards, 24-hour news Eight. Is being sued by a privacy group which claims the FBI trained Best Buy employees to search customers' computers for child pornography. In the lawsuit, the group says informants who are trained, directed, and paid by the FBI to conduct searches for the agency are acting as government agents. They say these informants search the computers when they are brought in for repair without warrants. Paula, how common is it for the FBI to have a relationship with a company like it does with Geek Squad? Well, it's not common, and if it is common, it's certainly not commonly known. And here, the FBI really disagrees with the characterization of this relationship. They say that they did not ask anyone to search devices for any evidence of a crime, that they did not train them. But, Elaine, they do not deny that money was exchanged, that they offered some of these Geek Squad employees rewards, financial rewards, several hundred dollars, uh, for reporting these statistics, or excuse me, this evidence. And what's so interesting about this is what this comes down to is is the fact that this lawsuit argues that the FBI is trying to get around the constitutional protections. Elaine, you and I both have a constitutional right to be protected from the government searching our stuff. But you don't really have that same protection from private citizens, your neighbors, strangers, perhaps people at Geek Squad searching your stuff. So here, this lawsuit is trying to argue that, look, if the FBI is trying to get around those constitutional protect protections by having private people do it, we don't think that's fair. But the FBI says, look, they weren't working on our behalf. They just happened to see something and they reported it and we gave them money. Well, these allegations were first made after a California doctor took his computer to a Best Buy store for repair and later was charged with possessing child pornography. Where does that case stand right now? Elaine's case has been going on for years. Uh, it first surfaced in 2011. Uh, the doctor was indicted around 2014. And now the two sides are just arguing over whether or not this evidence that was discovered by the Geek Squad, whether or not you can actually admit it in court. It's truly central to this case. So once the judge issues a final ruling on this particular piece of evidence, then the case can go forward. But it, it has been languishing in the courts for years and years now. Well, Paula, when you send in your electronic devices to be repaired, can you expect your private information to remain private. Well, it depends what kind of private information. You should certainly expect to have your credit card information or pictures of your children uh, should be protected. No one should be sharing those. 
But Elaine, when it comes to evidence of a crime, uh, many companies have policies that require their employees to report any sort of evidence of a crime, particularly something like child pornography. Uh, those kinds of crimes, uh, any individual who finds evidence of that in your car, in your laptop, whatever it is, you really don't have an expectation of privacy against private citizens who discover that. Uh, for law-abiding citizens, what sort of laws are in place to protect you from what someone might see on your device when you do hand it over to them? Again, when it comes to evidence of a crime, there aren't a lot of laws on the books. So it seems here like what this doctor is trying to do is to get some legal precedent, so sort of get a bench ruling that can help protect people. Um, because what they're arguing is that, look, I'm protected from government searches. They argue Geek Squad was acting as an arm of the government and they should have been protected against this. So far, they haven't been successful uh, in the doctor's case uh, in making that argument. But now there's this separate line of inquiry, this lawsuit, they want more information. They want to know the extent of this relationship between FBI and Geek Squad. And if there is a relationship, they're going to try to sue to get it blocked. All right, Paula Reed in Washington for us. Paula, thank you. On Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. We turn now to a remarkable investigation into law enforcement's unregulated use of young confidential informants in drug cases. On Monday, New Yorker staff writer Sarah Stillman won a George Polk Award for her eight-month investigation on the topic. Her article is called The Throwaways, and it spurred calls for reform in several states, including most recently Washington State, where new legislation regulating the use of drug informants is underway. In her article, Stillman describes how police broker deals with young, trained informants to perform high-risk operations with few legal protections in exchange for leniency. The results can be fatal. One such informant, Detroit teenager Shelley Hilliard, was murdered after being caught by police with less than an ounce of marijuana and agreeing to set up her drug dealer in order to avoid prosecution. This is Shelley's mother, Lenise Nelson. It's like they just threw her away. <laughs> They didn't even care, because just the way she said it to me, the way her tone, she was like, I'm, I'm scared, what do I do? I said, you got to protect yourself, because I knew they didn't care about it. They want, they, she could have went to jail for that ounce, but she said, they made me sign my name. They made me be an informant. I was like, so where's the police now? She said, they gone. They made her do that, and they left her in the room. That was Lenise Nelson, the mother of a teenage informant who was murdered when trying to set up her drug dealer in order to avoid prosecution for less than an ounce of marijuana possession. By some estimates, up to 80 percent of all drug cases in America involve such informants. Journalist Sarah Stillman writes about another confidential informant, Rachel Hoffman, a 23-year-old Florida State student who had just earned admissions to a master's program in mental health counseling when cops found drug in, drugs in her apartment. To get off the hook, she agreed to assist the cops in a major undercover deal involving meeting two convicted felons alone in her car to buy two and a half ounces of cocaine, 1,500 ecstasy pills, and a semi-automatic handgun. Within days, Rachel Hoffman's body was found shot five times in the chest and head with the gun that the police had sent her to buy. We're joined right now by Rachel's mother, um, joining us from the Tampa studios, uh, PBS studios of uh, uh, WEDU. If you could tell us, Margie Weiss, what happened to your daughter? Go back to 2007. 2008 is when she was murdered, and in 2007, she— um, just before she graduated FSU, 
and she also had a um, um, major in criminal justice as well as psychology. Um, they stopped her because she had been driving eight miles over the speed limit. She went to FSU, Florida State University, and they arrested her because they found 25 grams of pot, which is less than an ounce, and the law is if you have over 20 grams, I believe it's a felony. And um, she went into drug court, and she was to graduate it in April and of 2008. And when she graduated and um, was ready to come home in August, her lawyer told her, told us, he called us two days before she was supposed to move home, that she had to stay in Tallahassee to get her, to be able to get her record expunged, which is what we wanted, because she was going to go on for her master's degree in counseling and, be and work towards becoming a psychologist and work with kids. And that never got to happen because they raided her apartment and apparently she was um, getting pot for her and her friends. And they found five ounces, which is less than what this cup would hold. And we, her father and I were unaware of any of this going on. And when they raided her apartment, the officer said, we can make all this go away if you work for us. And she said, okay, because she did not want to shame her family. The problem with, um, I want to digress and give you my opinion about it, but um, after that, they used, she called me, and I had just come back from Passover, and she was supposed to come with me. But she was in um, home at a funeral, and she missed a urine test, and they threw her in jail that weekend, which was a month before they raided her apartment. And I think it was like to scare her so that later down the road, before her probation was complete, they could do something like this. I don't know. It's just I became suspicious after she was murdered. And. Um, so tell us she what happened when— She said, Mom, I want you to surround me with your love and light because I'm thinking of doing something dangerous. And I paused and I said, Rachel, did you just hear what you said, you know? What are you talking about? Don't do it. But what is it that you're talking about? If you know ahead of time that you're going to do something dangerous, that's enough evidence to tell you not to do it. And she goes, well, you know how I'm a criminal justice major? I thought it'd be really cool to, like, write a book about, you know, um, working undercover and exposing what it's all about. And I said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard you tell me. I said, don't do it. And she said, Mom, don't worry, I'll be fine. And I said, don't do it. And all I knew was the word undercover. At that time, I didn't know informant. I didn't know the word snitch for, like, at least two years after that. And um, she said, well, I'll call you on Monday. We're going to do it on Monday, and I'll talk—you know, you, I'll tell you what's going on the whole way through. And apparently that was the first time and the only time that they used her before she was murdered. And um, 
When she called me, the policeman was there in the car. His name was Pooh Bear. And she was talking to him and giggling and acting like it was just an adventure. And that he had her back and he would keep her safe. And then it was all over. And I was certain that since she told me about it and he knew that I knew that it really was all over. So when they called me a month later at three in the morning and said my daughter was missing, I thought, well, maybe she's at a festival or maybe she's with a friend because I had been called by her father at Thanksgiving time and she was at a festival and I found her through her friends. So I started calling her friends and um, I said, do I need to come up to Tallahassee? And they said, no, not at this time. Now, she had been murdered at 7 o'clock on Wednesday and they were calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. And I just went into shock and I was like in shock for probably the next two years. But at about 8 or 9 in the morning, officer, I believe his name was Odom, called me and said, um, you can come up now. And I didn't get out of the house till 11. And you know, what was weird was a half a year before my father died and they called me and I was out of the house in 15 minutes so that's why I think I was in shock and I told my husband and he was ready to follow me up there and I said no she's going to be okay she's going to be okay and I talked to her father I talked to her best friends I was searching for her and so I drove up and when I got near Perry which is where they found her body in a ditch which was another county out of Tallahassee um, the victim's advocate was talking to me, Kim Powell, <clears throat> and she said, um, I can't remember the exact words, but she said they might find Rachel's, you know, with her missing, they might just find her body. And I said, are you saying that that's a possibility or probability? Meaning one would mean yes and one would mean no. And I had to hang up the phone, and I just screamed as loud and as long as I could. And I was hoarse from it. And um, I drove up to the, um, at, and then I called my husband, and I said, come. So he hurried up, and the rabbi hurried up, and her father was a half hour behind me. And I got to the um, police department in Tallahassee. And the victim's advocate, Kim Powell, was there, and she saw me in, and there were four or five police officers um, escorting me into the narcotics division, and I thought that was odd because she was a missing person. And um, we sat down, and they asked me if I wanted to, you know, wait for Irv to show up, her father, before I spoke with them, and I said yes, because he's more clear about following the conversation and I didn't want to say, you know, anything that I didn't have a witness to. Anyway, I was just, I was just numb. I was just in shock. And uh, they said, well, she's missing and they didn't tell us anything about what had happened, that they had used her as an informant, how she had died. I found out about the gunshot wound six weeks later on her um, death certificate. I didn't know where, I didn't know 
how many, I found that out two years later during Danilo Bradshaw's The Accomplice, I believe. Margie, I want, um, I want to turn to Tim. trial because he felt that he was innocent because it was his stepbrother-in-law that they found the blood on his pants. Margie, I want to turn to Tampa Hello? police officer David McCranny. Um, here's how he described what went, what went wrong in your daughter Rachel Hoffman's case. She was told to stay in a certain location. We have protocols that, that were in place that would keep her safe at that location. She then decided to leave and meet them on her own in the investigator, the case uh, investigator in charge, communicated with her on the phone and told her, do not leave, uh, pleaded her not to leave, do not meet them. Um, our stance is uh, your safety, the safety of the public, is far more important than any drug deal. Uh, we can always make another drug deal. So we, we pleaded with her not to leave. Uh, she was able to leave before we could stop her and uh, decided to meet them on her own. I want to turn now to Sarah Stillman, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. She just won a George Polk Award for magazine reporting for her piece, The Throwaways, that uh, came from an eight-month investigation into how law enforcement uses young confidential informants. Talk about how Rachel's story, um, as her mom, Margie Weiss, describes it, fits into this bigger picture and what you learned happened uh, with Rachel. What was the encounter that led to her death? Yeah. Well, part of what really stood out about Rachel's case is that, you know, here she was, this young woman found with some pot and I believe a small handful of ecstasy pills. And she was sent off ultimately to buy 1,500 ecstasy pills, a stash of cocaine, and a handgun from two convicted felons. Um, ultimately, in the midst of the sting, the police lost track of her. Um, as often happens in these situations, she was told to go to a second location. Um, and when she did that, ultimately, um, one of the men found the wires, the surveillance wires that the police had hidden in her purse, um, and shot her. Um, in her purse? And Exactly. They were hidden in her purse, which some some police would argue um, was sort of against the conventional protocols of, you know, the safest place to put the wires. But um, they opened the purse to essentially to, to stage a robbery, to steal the money in the purse, um, and then she was killed. And Sarah Stillman, how uh, different is Rachel Hoffman from the typical uh, confidential informant whom you profile in your New Yorker piece? You know, I think demographically she may not be the most representative insofar as, you know, many of the people who are—who find themselves in these very vulnerable situations do not necessarily kind of have a college education, do not necessarily have, you know, parents who are looking out for them, who um, who also, you know, afterwards really stand up and speak out, as, as Margie and Irv Hoffman um, have done, really getting out there to um, really fight for reforms, to say, you know, we've heard so many stories from people around the country who have faced really similar things. Um, without protection, young people, sometimes teenagers, sometimes people as young as, you know, 15 years old, going out there into these very dangerous situations. Um, and uh, ultimately, kind of, the, uh, Rachel's parents have really fought for legislation to try to change this in, in Florida and, you know, hopefully at some point around the country. 
We're going to go to break and then come back to this conversation. We'll be joined by a professor who has written a book on this subject and staying with Sarah Stillman as we hear the story uh, not only of Rachel Hoffman, um, but of other young people who become informants and what happens to them, who is responsible for them, who is responsible for their lives. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report, back in a minute. Thanks so much for watching this report from Democracy Now!, your daily independent global news hour. We don't accept advertising or corporate funding, but rather rely on donations from viewers like you. Please make your contribution by visiting democracynow.org. We need your support today to keep bringing you this hard-hitting, in-depth reporting. for an officer to be pulling up to the crime scene when a crime is actually taking place. So we have to develop good police skills to catch those bad guys after they fled the scene. Like a lot of cops, I used to race 80, 90 miles an hour to a call, trying to get there before the bad guys have fled. Most of the time they were gone. So it's important to realize that we have to have contacts. We have to have good street sources. An old timer told me years ago that Pat could look out that squad car window forever and you're never going to know what's going on out there. The only way you're really going to know what's happening on our beat is to get out there and talk to people. And it was such a simple message, but it sent me on the right path. Most good things that happened in my career were the direct result of having good informants. It aggravates me when I hear people tell me, oh, I'm in patrol. I don't think I need informants. That's just for detectives or investigators. Good informants, good street sources are for any cop that wants to make an impact on the crime problems that are occurring in your city or town. During this next training segment, we're going to talk about where to find good informants. We're also going to talk about how good informants can help you, what officers need to understand when they are dealing with street informants. You also have to understand that working with informants is a personality game. If people like you and trust you, they'll do some pretty amazing things for you. We want you to be able to go out there and be as effective as you possibly can when you are working the street. It's important for officers to understand how good CIs can help you. They're going to help you in a lot of ways. One, they're going to supply gang intelligence. They're going to give you the information you need to stay in control of the gang problems in your city or town. They're gonna to provide information and probable cause for search warrants. They're not only gonna give you the information you need to get that search warrant, but they're also gonna tell you about important things when you execute that warrant. Are there any dogs in the house? Are there any kids present? 
Do they have any security cameras that you should be aware of? These are very important things. They're going to help behind the scenes with interrogations. Many of my informants have been instrumental in giving me the inside information that helped me crack important cases. They're going to infiltrate places and groups where you as I, as police officers, probably would never be able to go. They're also going to conduct buys for you. Sometimes you can insert an undercover officer, but there's times when the only way you're going to get the job done is to have a CI go in there and make a buy. A good CI is going to be your eyes and ears in places that you and I would never be able to walk. Every day you're going to come in contact with people that can help you out. There's a lot of people out there that don't want to be signed up, that don't want to be paid. They don't want to go to court and testify. They don't want it to be known that they're a CI, but they're willing to help you out. A good source can come from many opportunities that are presented to you on the street. Mailmen, for example. They're marching up and down the same streets every day. They know where the good houses are. They know where the bad houses are. So it only makes sense that you stay in touch with people like that. Also business owners. They employ a lot of times large amounts of people who are gonna find out about criminal activity, might even be involved in criminal activity. What goes on over the weekend is gonna be discussed at work when people come back in on Monday morning. So it only makes sense to stay in touch with the business owners in the area that you're patrolling. Also, anybody that has a restraining order on someone can be an extremely valuable source for a police officer. They'll be happy to tell you anything you want to know about the person they have that restraining order against. And don't just get caught up in talking about what the uh, person they have the restraining order is up to. Ask them about their friends. Ask them about where they cop their dope, where they buy their dope, what they pay for their dope, what, uh, where do they get their weapons, where do they hide their weapons. Try to find out as much about that person that has that restraining order on them as you possibly can. Hotel and motel clerks can also be a valuable find for police officers. Get in, stop in, talk to them, get to know them. Let them know that you're interested in any kind of suspicious activity that they might observe. Most of the time they're not going to see criminal activity actually taking place, but they are going to see suspicious behavior. So let them know you're interested, ask them to give you a call so you'll have a chance to check it out. I've solved a lot of good cases working with hotel and motel clerks. Don't wait for them to call you. Get out and reach out to them. Building managers and landlords are also valuable contacts. Multi-unit apartment buildings, janitors can be very helpful, the managers, the owners of the buildings. If you can remove a problem tenant from one of their buildings, you'll be their hero. They'll love you. Also, if you have a trailer park in your town, where there's a lot of problems, criminal activity, drug dealing, possibly prostitution going on. Get to know the people that run these trailer parks also. They can be valuable contacts that can provide you with information to help you make arrests. Bar and restaurant owners are somebody that you should reach out and contact and interview also. A lot of criminal activity takes place around bars. People start drinking a lot. They start getting loose-lipped. Their volume goes up, their guard goes down, and a lot of criminal activity is discussed in these places. So get to know the doormen, get to know the bartenders. 
Community leaders and all the various ethnic communities need to be reached out and talked to. Let them know that you're interested. When I first started working Asian crime, I didn't really know much about what was going on in the different Asian communities, but I spent six years on the FBI's Asian gang and organized crime task force. And one of the ways that I was successful at working Asian crime was I introduced myself to the different Asian ethnic community leaders. And it helped me in a tremendous way. Because when I first started, a lot of people told me Asians will never confess, you'll never be able to develop any informants. I found that to be very far from the truth. But you gotta go out there and meet these people. It's a personal contact that you're gonna make with these different community leaders that's gonna make a big difference. Go out there, meet them, go to their community meetings. I didn't just go there with one business card, I went there with a handful of them. And I let them know, I wanna be the contact for your community. I want to be the police officer that they can trust and count on to help solve some of the crimes that are occurring in their community. Prostitutes' very lives depend on knowing the streets, so cops should always be working them. We know things have changed with the internet, ways of providing prostitution services have changed, but there's still a lot of areas of the country that have street walkers. Get to know those girls that are out there. Also homeless people. A lot of cops dismiss homeless people as just down on their luck, don't know anything about anything. They know a lot about what's going on on the street. One of the things that I was surprised about when I worked five years undercover in the gang crime unit was the gangbangers aren't as tight as they appear to be on the street. I found out that there was a lot of animosities, a lot of infighting, and a lot of people had a lot of ideas about getting even with somebody that they didn't get along with. It could have been a rival, dope seller, somebody beefing about a corner, somebody losing their girlfriend to a, another fellow gang member. And police officers that can take advantage of these can make a big difference in your city or town. I hope you'll take some of these ideas and use them when you go out on the street. The best cops and agents that I've met in my career aren't the ones that wait for something to happen. They go out there and be proactive. They go out there and mix it up with people on the street. And if you do that, it's gonna make you a much better and more effective cop. It's a well-known fact that most crimes are solved through good street information. In the last segment, we talked about developing good CIs and confidential street sources. In this next training segment, we're going to talk about how to get the most information out of our CIs. We're going to talk about how patrol officers can go out there and get people in a position to give you usable street information. Every cop needs street sources. It's not just for detectives or investigators, it's for anyone that wants to solve the crimes that are occurring in your area of responsibility. So we have to go out there and work people. We have to go out there and meet people every day. We have to go out there and develop contacts. And you should spend a big part of your day on patrol, getting out of that steel cocoon, that squad car, 
that handicaps a lot of police officers. They don't just take the time to go out there and meet people. Effective police officers are going to spend a big part of their day getting out of that car and meeting people, going out there and working it, trying to find out not only who works on your beat, who hangs out on your beat. It takes work to develop a good CI, and smart officers are going to go out there and put that work in. One of the things that surprised me the most when I was working undercover in the Chicago Gang Crime Unit was how much information I heard out on the street. Bad guys can't keep their mouths shut. They're talking about crimes constantly. And it's something that a lot of cops don't realize, how much talk and gossip does go down on the street. And if you don't have contacts, if you don't have people that you can reach out to to get some of that information, you're just gonna not know what's going on. You could look out that squad car window forever and you're never gonna figure out what's happening. The only way you're really gonna be able to get good street contacts is to get out there and meet them, talk to them, work them. Let them know who you are. Get to know who they are. I literally sat with two guys one time that were talking about who killed the guy. And they were actually arguing about it. It was my nine that took him down. No, it was my nine. There's only two types of criminals that I've worked with in my career that don't talk much about what they do. One is pedophiles, unless they're dealing with another pedophile. The other one is serial killers. Serial killers aren't gonna go out there and talk or brag about how many people they whacked. But the reality of it is, most other criminals can't keep their mouths shut. We only deal with a small percentage of bad guys. Everybody in the neighborhood we're patrolling, no matter where you're patrolling, whether it's a big city or small town, is not a criminal. Only a very small percentage of those people are committing crimes. And especially in today's environment, letting people know who you are, letting people know that you're out there working the job, doing your patrol duties, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and that's protecting the community. You want to be able to go out there and make friends, make contacts. And the more contacts you have, the more information you're going to be able to get from the street. A lot of patrol officers might not realize that they need street sources and confidential informants. There is a difference. A lot of uh, departments and agencies sign up their confidential informants where they take a lot of valuable information. They'll fingerprint them, photograph them, document them, give them a number. But there's also street sources out there, people that are just willing to talk to the police. And we have a lot of clout with people on the street. If you have the right approach, the right attitude, you'd be surprised at how many people would be willing to talk to you. And a lot of cops don't take advantage of that. There's a lot of reasons people get on board and become informants. Uh, and then there's a lot of reasons they don't. We have to understand what goes through people's minds that are thinking about possibly cooperating with you. We have to understand they have fear, fear of harm or retaliation, not only against themselves, but also against family members. So that's a big consideration that we have to think about when we are talking to people. So when you're talking about that, you gotta let them know. What you tell me is gonna be held strictly confidential. Nobody's gonna know who you are. Nobody's gonna know that you talk to me. So we gotta reinforce that. We can't just assume they know. Uh, there's also a big distrust factor. People don't trust the police. And there's a lot of reasons why they don't. And some of them are valid reasons. Other cops have burned people. You know, they've said they would not give up their identity and they have. So just as we size up everybody we deal with, people are sizing us up also. They're making judgments on, can I trust this cop? Is he gonna really or she gonna really do what they tell me they're gonna do? I think a big problem that holds police officers back from developing CIs is that they don't spend the time it takes 
to get people in the right frame of mind to want to cooperate. So let's say you just bust somebody on a drug case and you're trying to get that person to help you move up the chain. Well, you want to move that person pretty quick. You don't want to give them a lot of time to think about what could possibly happen. So give them the phone. Have them make a dirty phone call. They don't have to order up dope, but if you can get them on the phone in front of you, making a contact, making a phone call, just discussing dope, a lot of things are gonna move a lot easier because you're taking them through that first stage. Why doesn't everybody become an informant? Well, I think a big part of it is that officers don't take the time to explain to the potential informant the benefits of them cooperating with you, of them providing you with usable street information, that you can help them out when they get into court. You'll be able to go to bat for them. If you give people too much time to think, there's a lot of things that we've talked about already, the reluctance, the distrust factor, uh, just the fact that they're going against everything that they ever said they would do. Being a snitch, being an informant for the police is something that most of these guys talk about they'll never do. But from my experiences, I've seen that more people will cooperate than won't. So smart cops are gonna realize that dealing with CIs is a personality game. If people like you and trust you, they'll do some pretty amazing things for you. Keep in mind though that it's always gonna be revolving around them. What is the benefit for them to cooperate? What is the benefit for them to get on board and provide you with information? Treat your CIs like a long-term investment. Dealing with CIs is like panning for gold. You're gonna pan through a lot of piles of shit before you find that gold nugget. But once you find that gold nugget, you're gonna see it's gonna be well worth the work you put in. A lot of police officers don't realize that we can use the power of bullshit. The bad guys are bullshitting us all the time. There's nothing wrong with us feeding a little BS back to them. And we can do it and we should. The bottom line is, cops can be very creative when they're dealing with the bad guys. Most people when they're initially arrested are gonna be very racked. They're gonna be very scared. They're gonna be thinking about a lot of things. They're gonna be thinking about their girlfriends. They're gonna be thinking about their families. They're gonna be thinking about their future. And this is the time we wanna get them on board. This is the time we wanna rack them. When they're nervous, when they're scared, that's when they're most susceptible to getting on board and cooperating with us. One of the techniques that I used to use all the time was called planting landmines. Planting landmines is just a little trick we use on the bad guys to make them believe that they might be in the sights of a federal prosecutor. I would tell them that I was at a meeting the other day with a federal strike force. And this is a group of federal agents that travel around the state looking to pick up local cases. And I think this is the kind of case that they would key in on to charge with RICO. And RICO is the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It was an act that was put in place in 1970 to fight organized crime, the mafia, but local cops have now realized that it's a great tool to use on gang and drug investigations and also on other criminals. So I would plant that seed in their head that the feds are looking, if you want to deal with me, that's fine. If you want to cooperate with me and talk with me, fine. If not, I'll call in the local strike force. The feds will be all over this case and you're gonna get a lot more time than you would in state court. An extremely important part of dealing with CIs is staying in control. You have to make sure that you know everything they're doing, make sure that they're not doing anything they're not supposed to do, because I've seen a lot of good cops do a lot of great police work only to get torn down by some of the things they did with their CIs. You gotta keep in mind that you don't ever trust your CI completely. 
Don't ever do anything with a CI that you can't stand having repeated in open court. Always make sure that you double check everything your CI is telling you. You want to make sure that you verify that. Whenever you deal with a CI and things go wrong, you're always going to be under the spotlight. And whenever anybody's put under the intense spotlight of scrutiny, they're going to start looking at everything you did. Everybody's going to have wrinkles. And everybody loves you when things go good. When things go bad, it's going to be a whole different story. It was his CI that gave us the information. It was her CI that told us about that house. So we always have to verify and double check. Whenever you use a CI to put a case together, no matter what type of case it is, when you get into court, defense attorneys are going to take a very close look at what you did. They're going to examine everything you did with that CI. Defense attorneys are always going to look for the entrapment issue. How far did your CI go? Uh, were they still within the guidelines of your agency? And were the guidelines of what they are allowed to do and not to do? So with dealing with CIs is such an important issue that you got to make sure that you do it right. You don't want that CI lying to you. So a good way to prevent that is always ask for information you already know the answer to. And if they lie to you, call them on it. Don't be afraid to put your finger right in their face and say that's BS and you know it's BS. When you're bullshitting me, you're bullshitting a lot of other people besides just me. You're going to have a judge mad at you. You're going to have a prosecutor mad at you. You're going to have a lot of other people mad at you besides just me. So it's very important that we emphasize when we are dealing with CIs, we always want the truth and we're going to insist on that. I'm a big believer in having your notebook with you when you are debriefing your CIs. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't write down what they tell you, you're not going to be able to check on the accuracy of what they've told you in previous meetings. Dealing with CIs, a lot of them are going to go south on you. You don't want to become a CI for that CI. You don't want to ever give up all your undercover cars. Don't let them see all your undercover officers or surveillance vehicles. Don't ever let them know anybody else that you're working with as a CI unless you absolutely have to. Uh, the bottom line is some cops become CIs for the CI and that can be a big mistake and unless you're paying attention to what you're giving up and telling your CI you might fall into that trap. When my CIs came through for me with good information that resulted in an arrest or a good seizure I always made a big deal out of praising the heck out of them. I made them feel real good about what they did and I wanted to let them know. My boss was very happy with the results that I got from your information. You literally could have saved my life from me getting shot by somebody if I didn't get all those guns off the street. And they were right where you said they were going to be. It's important that police officers always make a big deal after they get a good, solid hit from a CI. It's important that they realize that you're going to make that CI feel good enough that they're going to want to do it again. And that's an important thing to remember. We always want to make our CIs hungry to do it again for us. And one of the things I used to say all the time is, you should have seen my boss high-fiving me when I brought in all those guns. You should have seen my partner give me a bear hug when we found all the doping guns right where you said they were going to be. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate that. It's very important to lift your informants up, to praise them when they come through. Sometimes you're the only person in authority that ever said, good job, hey, thank you, that really means the world to me. You know, there's a lot of motivating factors with your CIs. Some will do it for excitement, some will do it for revenge. Sometimes even CIs will do it for money. But the bottom line is, you know, there's a lot of different relationships that police officers are going to have with CIs. 
But if you follow the rules that we talked about during this training segment, uh, always treat your CIs right. Don't let them get away with lying to you. Always make sure that you check the accuracy of what your CI is telling you. Have your notebook out and take notes. That gives you an opportunity to check what you've been told in previous meetings. Also, uh, you always treat people right because you never know when it's going to come back later on. You might think you're done with this CI because the case is over with, but you never know what that CI might hear down the road. You never know what might come up uh, in a future case that if you treat people the right way, praise the heck out of them, treat them good. They're going to want to be your friend and having a friend out there can be a valuable asset whether you're police in a big city or a small town. When something goes down, you want to be the go-to guy or girl that people are going to reach out to and talk to.